Good morning and Happy New Year. This is the first uh, Sunday of the year, isn't it? And with that, we're going to start something new. We're going to start a new book today. We're going to be beginning, beginning in James chapter 1, so you can turn there. And we will be in the book of James until Easter. <clears throat> James is a, a short, but it's a very powerful book. If you've read it before, you know what I'm talking about. James speaks like a prophet, doesn't he? <clears throat> but with very practical applications. He's believed to be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and he was martyred in the year 62, which means the book had to have been written earlier than that, and making it one of the first books of the Bible that was probably was written. <clears throat> James was a leader in the early church, and his concern for the church and the things going on are obvious as you read through this book. And James is one of those persons who's not afraid to say something if it needs to be said. And uh, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you really want to live for him, um, it can be hard to hear those things, but refreshing at the same time, can't it? <clears throat> so it's a book of action and a good way to start the new year. So let's begin, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses, and I'll go ahead and read. You can read along with me if you, if you like. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of a of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. <clears throat> so James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I looked up a definition for bondservant and found something I, I, I didn't expect, <clears throat> but I thought it was quite interesting. As you might remember, we saw this in Ephesians, a bondservant is, is someone who belongs to another. He's a, bonds, he's a slave. He has no rights, no pay, no nothing. He just does what he's told. But in this particular dictionary that I looked up, it, it also said, it is used with the highest dignity in the New Testament, namely of believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers. I thought that was a good definition to add to the dictionary. <laughs> so a typical bond servant is a, is a person who, when asked, he says, I can't do anything other than what the master wants. But a New Testament bond servant, if we look at the second definition, he says, I wouldn't think of doing anything other than what my master wanted. I want to have that attitude every day when I get up, don't you? I'll never forget Gene Gibson preaching. He says, I want the Lord Jesus Christ to be the first thing on my mind when I get up in the morning and the last thing on my mind when I go to sleep at night. That's a good way to look at it. 
So I love this, the, how the, the, the uh, apostles and disciples use the word bondservant for themselves. It really goes along with the rest of Scripture and what God does. And I love this thing about God is, have you ever noticed how he tends to turn things upside down? For instance, when you look at the Old Testament and, and uh, Samuel's looking for David, we learn from, from that situation that God says it's more important to see the inside than the outside. That's where you really want to look, huh? <clears throat> and we learn in the scripture that treating everybody the same is important, that it's not good to elevate some and, and put down others, which is common in this world. And he teaches us that if you want to be great, you should be a servant. He uses the lame and the weak instead of the strong and the fit to accomplish his purposes. See that over and over again. And here in this passage, he makes a slave something to be desired instead of feared. The truth is, is that he's not turning something upside down. He's turning it right side up. We have it backwards, don't we? And so this passage is going to be like that we're going to study today where God looks like he takes something and turns it upside down, but he's really turning it right side up. And I hope we all see that today as we go through this. <clears throat> so James is writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered. These are the ones who are scattered as a result of Paul's uh, persecution of the Christians. And James is writing to them, and he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, which they had, hadn't they? But if you think about it, these are those hard words, aren't they? Be joyful in trials? We don't naturally combine joy and trials, do we? For us, they don't mix like oil and water. The reality is that sometimes we can even laugh at this, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Have joy in trials? Reminds me of Sarah when God told her that in her old age she would have a son. She laughed. That's unbelief. That's not right, is it? We tend to laugh about learning patience in our lives, right? We say things like, be careful what you pray for. God might work patience in your life. <clears throat> and you know, the reality is, is that we have to put ourselves in Sarah's shoes at that point, don't we? That we're, we're, we're not believing that God can work patience in our life. Or uh, maybe we think it's not attainable for us for some reason. And we forget who it is who's doing the work. It's God who's doing the work. And he's serious about it, isn't he? There's a lot of things he's doing in your lives and mine, isn't he? And this is probably one, a really critical area, a very important area. And he takes the time and the trouble to personally engineer circumstances to work this out in our lives. And sad to say, we, we often resist. And I'm disappointed in myself when, I, when that happens. And I thought, ah... I don't want to be like that. We're going to see from the passage, too, that if we tend to take that attitude, we miss multifold blessings as a result as well. So let's look at this piece by piece, shall we? He says, consider it all joy. What is this joy he's talking about? <clears throat> well, let me ask you. We're going to look at an example in the Old Testament in Acts. But before we do that, let me ask you, what if you were thrown in jail and beaten for preaching the gospel? Would you be happy? Imagine being arrested and put in a cell. <sighs> Door closes. Oh, I, I hate that sound. 
Imagine the shame or maybe the fear. We would all have kind of different reactions. Some of us might be indignant or resentful. We need to turn this right side up. If you want to, we can look at Acts chapter 5, verse 27. Um, The verse I'm looking for is actually later on, but I have to read a little bit here to give the context or the words won't have much meaning. But this is a live example of when the apostles were arrested for such thing. So in verse 27, he says, When they had brought them, they set them down before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. I love that. (laughs) The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witness to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one stood up, and one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So the apostles get put outside while he speaks. All right? And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and it came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days all who obeyed him were dispersed. I'm sorry. He rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. If this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him when they had called the apostles and beaten them. They commanded them. I wanted to point out something. Remember, the apostles didn't hear anything this guy said. They came back in thought it, thinking, okay, we're toast. We're, at, we're, we're done, right? But instead, they got called in and they were beaten and commanded not to speak it in the name of Jesus and then let go. Verse 41 is the verse I want to look at. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And, da- and I, love the, I love what they do next. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So here it is. These guys go through this experience, but they rejoice in it. They have a joy. Now this is something the world can know nothing about. This is something only happens for Christians. It's a supernatural realm. For them, it was a joy to have this trial. They didn't really see it as a trial, did they? They saw it as an opportunity to do something for Jesus. In this case, they had to suffer the shame of being arrested for his sake. So this is turning something right side up. This is the joy that that James is talking about, joy and trials. It is possible. It's very possible. In fact, if you ask me, it's the only way to live. But it's not easy, is it? It's not natural. So he tells him, consider all joy and you fall into various trials. What kind of trials? What types of trials are there? Various trials. You have... Small trials and large trials. 
getting a paper cut on your finger, or being told you have cancer. You have short trials and long trials. You have annoying trials and painful trials. And James doesn't make any exception here. He says all trials, doesn't he? And notice what else he says about these trials. He says when you fall into various trials, trials are unexpected, aren't they? It's not like that commercial on television they had recently. I think it's a healthcare commercial where this woman gets a letter and she opens it up and says, oh, in two days you're going to have a heart attack. You know, that doesn't happen, does it? It's, it's, trials are unexpected. You don't get any warning. And so, lesson learned there, <laughs> expect the unexpected, huh? We should not be surprised that trials will happen, okay? When the lady behind the counter is rude to you, when the guy cuts you off on the freeway, when someone steals your identity, when the computer is agonizingly slow, don't be surprised. And you know, it's, it's sad. For people who have been saved from sin and know the nature of the sin and what's going on in this world, the last people that should be surprised when something goes wrong is us. But sometimes we are surprised, maybe a little too often. And that's something we want to change. We want to turn that upside down. <clears throat> when are we going to stop being surprised? We're to count it all joy. Okay, does that mean we smile and laugh and everything through a hard time? What does the joy mean? This is what it means. I, I wrote this definition. Joy means that we have an unwavering faith in Jesus that he allowed the trial, that he is present to see me through it, and in addition, he'll use it for my own good and for others. And there's no reason for me to have a problem with it. In the midst of a trial, the believer can have peace. It's possible. And possible to have joy. So, are you laughing and smiling through a trial? No, not necessarily. But I would point out that Paul did sing while he was in jail. And later on, there was a man named John Huss. He was one of the early reformers long before Martin Luther. John Huss was burned at the stake for preaching the truth. And while he burned, he sang. What a witness, huh? What a witness. Who, who could do that? People should have looked at it and said, what's going on here? How is it this man can sing while he dies? Dies a painful death. Joy. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you fall into various trials. So the next verse shows us that God just doesn't want us to, you know, tough it out through trials or glibly go through them. Verse 3, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. First, I want to point out, I love the word knowing there. I love this word know because it has everything to do with salvation and God and everything he does. Before we were saved, we really didn't know anything, did we? Now we know God and we know it for sure and we know how he works and we know what's going on in this world and we know how it ends. So it's no surprise, put a lot of weight on the word, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It's good to know that there's a reason for the trials, isn't there? Good reasons, okay? First we'll point out it's a testing of your faith. What's a test? Do you want to pass the test? 
I do. <laughs> I want to pass the test. I don't want to fail. Would you like to do well on that test? For those of you who are still in school, how well would you like to do? Testing your faith might be reworded like this, an exercising of your faith. It's been uh, used before, and I can't help but do it, but because <coughs> my background is exercise physiology, and I love to talk about health. But it's like exercising a muscle. Instead of talking about the gym, I'll talk about a baby. When a baby lays in the crib moving around, it's using its muscles for a little effort, isn't it? And then one day, right, Luke, you get the baby up, and you try to get them to stand, and they, the muscles won't hold them yet. But you keep doing that, and eventually they exercise those muscles, and those muscles grow. And, and they're able to stand, and pretty soon they can walk, huh? And then they're running, and then they're riding bikes, and then they're running away from you. Um, then they're, you know, they become teens, and the hormones kick in, and they grow bigger muscles, and they do bigger and greater things, sometimes even break records. And so you become an adult, you know, you're fully grown, your muscles are fully developed, fully useful, right? <clears throat> As opposed to someone, I remember hearing about my aunt, who was in a terrible car wreck in 1959, and she was in a coma for the better part of a year. And when she came out of the coma, she had to learn to walk again because the muscles had not been used. And they had to regain strength again, and the, and the brain had to figure out which nerve, nerves to fire to get things going again. Had to start all over again. So it's good to exercise muscles. It makes them strong. It makes them useful. Same with faith. Same with trust in God. He is exercising our faith. And sometimes it doesn't always feel good. Just like in the gym, we say, no pain, no gain, right? <laughs> That's because in the gym, if you're going to build muscle, you have to tear the microfibers in your muscles, and they tear and split apart, and when they grow back together, they're longer. That's how you make bigger muscles. So we need to do some micro tears in our faith in order to grow our faith, don't we? And we need to go through certain things in order to, to realize, hey, I can handle this and I can probably handle more. <clears throat> so this type of exercise that God wants to put us through, it's supposed to produce patience. The word here has a connotation of not only patience, but endurance and steadfastness. Sometimes we cry out in our trials, Lord, why me? Why is this happening to me? I don't know about you, but sometimes when I've said that, I read, ah, never mind, Lord, I know why. <laughs> because you need it. Why do we need patience, endurance, and steadfastness? We don't really think about that, but you know, the simple answer is, is do you want to be a patient person or an impatient person? Do you want to be, handle, you want to be able to handle the rigors of life when things go wrong? Or do you want to fall down in misery every time things get rough? Do you want to be able to stand strong and stand for what is right? Or do you want to get weak knees every time a challenge comes along? That's really what it comes down to. It's a matter of choices, isn't it? Well, I think the answer is obvious. Yeah, I, I want to be a patient person. I've seen really patient people before, and I admire them. And I want to be like them. And I'm sure you've seen the same. 
But the big picture answer to that question, you know, Lord, why me? Why are these trials? Because he's producing patience in us. And verse 4 says, here's the big picture answer, but let this patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Sounds good, huh? So the trial produces patience if we go through it well. The patience is part of the work that's going on here too. I love a translation I have is from the Amplified Bible. It says, but let endurance and steadfastness and patience have full play and do a thorough work so that you may be a people perfectly and fully developed with no defects lacking in nothing. When you look at a five-year-old who throws down his bicycle and walks away because he's fallen five times, what do you think? You've got to get back on that thing and go at it again, huh? Patience, come on. When the same boy is uh, now 15 years old and walks off the football field because he thinks the referee made a bad call, what do you think? So the same boy is now 25 years old and he stomps out of his queue because the program he's been working on keeps coming up with bugs, and he goes into the kitchen and starts slamming cupboard doors and things like that. What do people think? Now the man is 35 years old, and he has kids, and he starts screaming at the referee for making a bad call during his son's football game. We expect that behavior out of a five-year-old, don't we? Because a five-year-old's got something to learn, don't they? But it shouldn't be said of a 35-year-old, should it? We hope that the 15-year-old might learn to be a good sport, that the 25-year-old might be able to learn to handle stress, and the 35-year-old knows, hey, bad calls happen sometimes, get over it. Right? And when someone succeeds in growing through these circumstances and handling them better, there's a word we use to describe them. And this is what James is talking about. We call this person mature. It just so happens that that is God's plan. In Colossians 1.28, he says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's the goal, isn't it? That's a good goal too, isn't it? We think about New Year's resolutions, beginning of the year. Maturity is a good one, huh? This then is the goal for, for, that God has for us from trials, maturity. He's doing a work here in our lives. He doesn't want us to stay immature Christians. When somebody first becomes a believer, you can't expect them to act like a mature Christian, just like you can't expect a 5-year-old to act like a 35-year-old, a mature 35-year-old, that is. The illustration has often been used of um, diamonds. If you've ever seen a diamond in the rough, it doesn't look like a diamond at all. It looks like a rock. Why anybody would be interested in this rock is beyond me. But when the diamond cutter begins to chisel pieces off of it and cut away in such a way to make it look like the shape that you think it should look like for a real diamond, it just so happens that all the bad stuff goes off too and all you're left with is the beautiful rock that you want. In the same way, God does that in our lives, too. And I don't know about you, but I, gotta, I need a lot of chipping. A lot of chipping. 
It's possible for a human to be mature physically, but not emotionally, right? I've seen some kids who act like adults and some adults who act like kids. So that shouldn't be said of anybody in the church, should it? It should be a different story for, for, for God's church. <clears throat> this then is the part of the joy in trials. Maturity, that's a good thing, isn't it? That would make me happy to be mature. I could have joy in that, couldn't you? Because if you think about it, you know people who are mature, who are patient, who are kind, and you admire them. They have a better life, don't they? They have a joy that maybe a lot of people don't have. And not only that, maturity makes us more useful in God's hands. Somebody who's, who's more uh, mature, who's more adept at handling situations is more useful. I want to do more for God. All right, so we've got to keep trials turned right side up, don't we? Okay, but now, wait a minute, John. What if the trials are exceedingly hard? What if it's over my head? It's really hard. I don't know what to do. Verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If it's too tough or it seems too tough, you know, God doesn't allow us more than we can handle. So we ought to know that right away. Okay, it's not more than I can handle, but I don't know how to handle it. And God says, yeah, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll help you through this. Okay? Wisdom. He'll give us wisdom. Spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is the practical application of God's word in our everyday lives, in everything. The word of God either has direct counsel about certain things or it has principles to go by. And, and you know, to think about, to, to, to expand a little further, God's not forgotten, or he's, he's developed even more things for us. We've got his word, and we've got elders, mature Christians, there to help us. We're not alone. We've got the church. We're not alone. You're going through a hard time. God promises wisdom. And if you can't look at your brother and say, hey, how did you go through this? You can go to God directly himself. Lord, show me. I want to understand the situation. I either need to know what to do, or I'd like to know what you're doing or why you're doing it. Now, God doesn't promise to answer all those questions, because sometimes that's not a good thing for us. But he does promise to give us wisdom to go through it. And you couldn't go to a better source for wisdom. I love some of these verses in the Bible about wisdom, the wisdom of God. In Job, with him... Our wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. In Isaiah, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, and his understanding is inscrutable. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You know, you just start thinking about things like that during a hard time in your life. I don't know how to do this, but my God does. Behold, God is mighty, but does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Is there anything too hard for God? Somebody say no. <laughs> There's nothing too hard for God. 
And when we get the wisdom from him, it allows us to do our best for him. Some of you might have heard of Warren Wiersbe. He's a, a Bible teacher, been on the radio quite a bit. He pastors the church, and he tells a story about a secretary who was going through some difficult trials. She'd had a stroke. Her husband had gone blind. And he had to be taken to the hospital where, as far as they knew, he would die. So Wiersbe saw the woman in the church one Sunday and assured her that he was praying for her. That's a good thing, isn't it? She startled him by asking, what are you asking God to do? I'm asking God to help you and strengthen you. I appreciate that, she said, but pray about one more thing. Pray that I'll have the wisdom not to waste all of this. Wearsby observed, she knew the meaning of James 1.5. So how does God give this wisdom? Liberally and without reproach. God is generous, generous. He is so generous and so merciful. He is so kind. He is not like us at all. You know, we go to human beings sometimes for help, and it's like, well, it's about time you came to me. I told you this would happen. You're not listening to me, are you? Oh, now you're finally going to come to me. And they make you feel small. And God could say these things, but he doesn't. Because humans want the glory. God doesn't want the glory. He just wants to help. He wants to see us through. That'll bring him plenty, plenty of glory when we yield to him and obey him. huh? It'll make our lives better too. But there is a condition to this wisdom. If you want it, look in verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what does, he, what does this mean? When we come to God and ask him for wisdom, we've got to believe that you know, he really does love us. He really does care. And he really does want to help. And with him, nothing's impossible. It's easy to say that when things are going well, but when things are going tough, sometimes we might get a little doubtful, and that's the time when it counts. If we doubt his goodness and his power, we're going to have no stability during hard times. A person who's like that, who's flopping back and forth, who has no discernment, is influenced by everything around them. You've seen people like this before. They're going through a hard time. They're listening to everybody and making decisions left and right willy-nilly. That's not the way to handle trials for the Lord. <coughs> You're not going to grow to maturity that way. You'll be like James says, a wave that's tossed. Here's a storm. And you've seen pictures of the sea and the, and, and, and the waves going here and there. The wind drives it this way, and then the wind changes directions and pushes it that way. The wave doesn't know where it's going. It's unstable, like the sea and a boat upon it. We cannot one minute rest upon his promises and the next minute think he's forgotten us. That just isn't right. <clears throat> Joseph spent years in jail, but he did not think God had forgotten him. When God told Abraham to leave Ur and go to a land which he'll show him, I love that because he doesn't tell him where he's going. Abraham, whose family has been living in Ur for probably generations, who's very wealthy, has to pack up his whole mansion and go. 
And they're on the road for many days. And Abraham didn't think, did I really hear God or not? Am I really doing the right thing or not? It's the same when he took Isaac to Mount Moriah. Lord, did you really say that? Should I go sacrifice my son? He didn't waver. We need to ask in faith without doubting what he will do. Because if we don't do that, if we waver, we become something we really don't want to be. I know there's some words that I would never like heard described about me. One of those is fool. I don't want anybody, I don't want ever to behave in such a way that somebody say, you're a fool, John. Or you're unfaithful. Or you're undependable. But one of the things I'd really be hate, hate to be labeled as is a double-minded man. A double-minded man is just that. He's got two minds. One mind is telling him to do one thing, and the other mind is telling him to do something different. Can't make up his mind. Huh. If I apply that to walking, imagine how ridiculous that looks. One part of my mind is telling my leg to go this way, and the other mind is telling me to go this way, and I'm confused. I hesitate, I doubt, I'm a mess, I look ridiculous. Unstable is what James says. I'm unable to walk. If I'm a double-minded man, I'm not fully committed to God in the situation, and that's exactly what I need to be. <clears throat> and there's a, there's a scary thing here. There's a promise, really. Verse 7, For let not the man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Well, I'll tell you something. In the middle of a trial, there's one person I don't want to be absent, and that's God. And double-mindedness is going to take us there. We've got to stay away from that. I don't want to be like that. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, you wouldn't want somebody to treat you like that either, right? I think of an example of a, a, a woman who's being pursued by a man. He says he's interested and he's, he wants to marry her, but he's got this eye on this other woman too. She's not going to stand for that. God doesn't either. Okay, let's move to verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation... Because as a flower of the field, he'll pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with burning heat than it withers the grass. The flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. As you're reading through this passage and you come to these verses, they look like he's talking about something different, doesn't he? Looks like he's changing the subject. But he's not. He's still talking about trials. And as I was studying this, I realized that he was dealing with one of the responses to trials that's very common, and one, one of the responses that's really lethal, as a matter of fact. Do you know what it is? Self-pity. You ever been to a pity party? It's the only party where it's acceptable for one person to be there. But it's easy to get others to join. <laughs> Self-pity says, God, you've been unfair, unkind, unjust, you let me in a situation you shouldn't have let me into. This is just totally wrong. You blew it, God. Poor me. You were bad to me, Lord. That doesn't make sense, does it? The lowly brother. He could complain like this, huh? Look at me. Poor me. I'm the lowly one. I don't have much. I don't have much opportunity. Trials are harder for me. 
But I like Bill McDonald's illustration of the real view of a, of a poor man in Christ, right? He illustrates this. Here's a poor man. He's a janitor in a big company like IBM or something like that. And he's got a little uh, workroom down in the basement of this big, tall building. The CEO has got an office up top, right? And the janitor who knows God has more spiritual insight, understanding wealth and hope than that CEO could ever think about because of what he has in Christ. He glories in his exaltation, right? He's not poor at all. <clears throat> the rich man, he gets a whole illustration to show that all he does will soon pass away. You can build all this stuff and do all these things, but all this stuff is passing away, like we read about earlier in a, in a previous meeting. You know, all this stuff is just going to burn up in fire. God's going to start over. But if he's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he can look out the, his office window and see the grass and the flowers out there and know that all this stuff's going to pass away, but he won't. He has a whole lot more in Christ than he does in his stock, doesn't he? What do we learn from this? Never think others have it better than you. You never know what others are really going through. I had the uh, uh, opportunity to live in an upper middle class neighborhood during my high school years. <clears throat> and uh, there were some pretty wealthy kids in that school. They had some pretty fancy houses. And it, it really surprised me at that age, 16, 17 years old. I ran across a couple of these kids and they had to be some of the biggest trouble in school. They didn't look like they had money at all when you looked at them, you know. And I think, you know, some people, I want to be in that family. I'd like to be adopted by this person and have that kind of wealth. You, don't, you have no idea what you're asking. You never want to be other than what God made you to be. You never want to wish you were born in another family, wish you were shorter, taller, stronger, darker, smarter. The list can go on, can't it? I've always noticed that God is the great equalizer, isn't he? Have you ever noticed that? You can see that in, in, in kind of the physical realm. What happens when a person loses their sight or is born blind? Their hearing is better, isn't it? Better than yours and mine. And we've even known some Christians who, even though they were blind, writ, writ, wrote hundreds of hymns. They're not stopped. God is the great equalizer. Never for a moment think he's left you short. Okay? If he were to actually give you what you think you wanted, you'd find out very quickly that God knew better. <clears throat> Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You know, if it wasn't enough that he was there, right? Offering wisdom, he's going to give a crown. We don't know a whole lot about the crown, but you know when I think of the crown of righteousness, you know when I think of what that is really? It's the Lord saying, well done. Well done. Don't you want to hear those words? So here is the true key to happiness. Blessed is the man who endures temptations and trials, huh? Again, we're turning things upside down, aren't we? 
So rebelling, rejecting, complaining, self-pity, bitterness, avoiding trials, these are all ways to have an unhappy life. But to count it all joy and endure the trials and grow, that's true happiness. And you really think about it. Here's the crux of the matter. Benjamin Franklin made this famous statement, which we're all familiar with. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And some have made taxes uncertain by cheating, haven't they? And some companies have as well. So we need to rewrite this, don't we? In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and trials. Even our own constitution says we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Notice it doesn't say you are guaranteed happiness here. You can pursue it. The only thing that's guaranteed is trials. God saved us from our sin and gave us a future that's glorious. It's going to last forever. He gave us his word with all his promises. He gave us his spirit, assuring that he's always with us. In this passage, we learn he's willing to give us wisdom in the trials. He's willing to engineer our lives to help us mature. And if that were not enough, at the end of it all, he's willing to reward us. Can you think of any reason why we should not have joy in trials? Or maybe that's the wrong focus and the wrong question to ask. Can you think of any good reason not to be willing to do what it takes to be a mature Christian? And I would, I would add to that by saying, again, you know, the world knows nothing of this. It's only the believer who can go through some of the worst things in life and come out ahead. The world has tragedy and can do nothing but cry. They have no hope. And so when James says, count it all joy, when he says God's trying to do a work in your life, it's a new year. The trials are going to come. The question is, is how will we respond? We want to live for Jesus. We want to make the best of this. Let's do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for these words. The world is out there with all its classes and teachers and counselors trying to get people through the hardest things in life. And in 12 verses, Lord, we have it all. Because you are a wonderful God. And you care deeply for us and you want the best for us. And we thank you so much for it, Lord. And we pray that Calvary Bible Chapel will indeed mature substantially this year. In your precious name, amen.